0: Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, in what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the Gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel.
1: Have taken uh, a few weeks off of our sermon series on the book of John uh, for Advent and for Christmas, but we're getting back into our sermon series tonight. This is week 11 in our sermon series on the Gospel of John, which has been dubbed by scholars as the spiritual gospel. It looks a lot different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It um, it has different theological emphases. The way that the story is told is much different. Uh, the depiction of Jesus in this gospel as well is very different. If you want something fun, um, you can compare the depictions of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke versus the depiction of Jesus in the book of John. One of the um, notable instances in this book, though, is long discourses. You have Jesus who is willing to engage with people, usually in a one-on-one sort of format, and just teach them. We don't see this picture in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And here tonight, we're going to get a story uh, that is also unique to John, and we're going to be reading in John chapter four. Tonight, I wanna experiment a little uh, bit with with a different style of preaching. This isn't gonna seem like too big of a stretch, but instead of reading through the text, I just wanna kind of guide us through um, this evening and include some anecdotes and some commentary and some thoughts uh, for some of you, this might be your first time through the story. For others of you that are seasoned veterans to all things within the church, this is going to be reviewed to you, although hopefully we can pull out some things for you that might be worth considering, maybe even for the first time. So before we begin, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then we will go through. Word of warning, and if you need to add this to your silent individual prayers as we're going into it, this is a long passage, Okay. This is, this is a story that needs to be completed. There's a couple stopping points where I think that we could, we could just stop there for a moment and, and preach a little bit, and I hope to do that, but this is, this is a long story. Note what I didn't say. I didn't say this is going to be a long sermon, okay? So believe with me in that, in the new year, that this will not be a long sermon, and we'll take all the time that we need here in John chapter four to learn what we need to learn through the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well, but let us not... Let us not, I pray, go too far. A field. Okay, so this is John chapter four, beginning in verse one. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who in fact were baptizing, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. Remember where we left off in John chapter three, Jesus has been interacting uh, with Nicodemus. Jesus has been interacting with, with uh, John the Baptist. Jesus has been interacting with people in in the south, and now that he knows that the Pharisees, which is almost a code word for the religious elite of the time, now that he knows that they are on his case, he is going to go back home. And the way that John phrases this is but he had to go through Samaria. Okay, now I want you to see this map because it's important for us to kind of get our bearings here. Jesus is hanging out here in Judea. We don't know exactly where it says that he's out in the country of Judea um, at some point with this baptism and being questioned by uh, some folks at this time. And then he's going to go up into Galilee and he's going to go through Samaria. It's interesting that John says that he had to go through Samaria because that's not in fact true. Jesus doesn't seem like he's pushed for time. This might be the the shortest route that he has from point A to point B, but even getting down from Galilee down to Judea, what he did was he hopped across the Jordan River to the east and came down here over through Jericho and back over to Jerusalem. There was also a, a route that was more coastal here on the side where one could go from Judea up the coast into Galilee and bypass Samaria altogether. But John is wanting to frame this story as a theological moment of importance for Jesus that he had to go through Samaria. Now, some of you might already be preempting where it is that I'm going in this because there's a story here. Particularly, the story is that the Israelites and the Samaritans, they hate each other. Some people take this back to the time of Israel's exile when God leads them out of of Israel into bondage into captivity uh, specifically with the Babylonians and the land is left um unoccupied more or less. The Samaritans take over in the land so that when the Israelites come back from exile, when they come back from their judgment, when they come back from their time of punishment, they see the land that is occupied. And the Samaritans, the people that are living in the land at the moment, begin to have altercations with the Israelites. They do not like each other at all. It's interesting as I was preparing this talk that I was trying to figure out who that might represent for us, And perhaps this just demonstrates my place of privilege. Yankees fans? I mean, for me, I I can't really make this make sense to you. And perhaps for some people in the seats, this might be a a bit more clear for you. But the Israelites and the Samaritans, they did not like each other at all. And John is setting up the entire story by this, this little clause here. He had to go through Samaria. In fact, one text in the intertestamental period, say intertestamental period, Yeah, you guys sound good. That's a way to win people over at a party, I'm sure of it. Just talk about their view on the intertestamental period and the books that were uh, written at that time. But in the book of Sirach, also known as Ecclesiasticus, uh, Sirach says, my spirit takes offense at two nations and the third is not even a nation. That is those who settled on Samaria's hills, the Philistines and the foolish people who dwell in Shechem. This is in between the Old Testament period and the New Testament period when people in the land we're beginning to talk about who the Samaritans were and the author of this book says, my spirit takes offense at these people. There was not a good relationship between the Israelites and the Samaritans. We also see this when Jesus tells his story of the good Samaritan. The hook there at the end of the story, the fact that it was the Samaritan who cared for the person who had been robbed and beaten, the Samaritan who loaded them up on his donkey and took them to the inn and paid their debts and paid for their place to to be, the the Samaritan who paid for them to be healed in a sense, to have ointments placed all over their body when the Jewish uh, religious leaders of the time passed by. It was the Samaritan who cared For his neighbor, the point, the hook, the turn of that parable is for any first century Jewish person, they would have said, no, not them, not those people. In a sense, what Jesus is tackling in the Good Samaritan is racism, it's prejudice. It's the way that we hold people at bay and say, I'm better, they're worse, I'm worth something, they're not. And how dare you put us in the same room? This is how John is framing this story. Jesus had to go through Samaria. The people that Jesus and the Israelites at the time were not known to intermingle with, yet Jesus is taking this route right up the middle to go to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria, the text says, and I think it's important for us to remember, that's not true. But for Jesus, he was compelled to go through Samaria for what is about to unfold, for the lesson that we will see in this story. So he came to a Samaritan city, it says, called Sukkar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well, This is interesting because we don't usually get these pictures of very human Jesus. A lot of times, in fact, we seem to put Jesus in this completely separate category, one who doesn't really identify with us, one that doesn't really know what we're going through. But Jesus here in this moment, he's tired, he's worn out, he's thirsty, he's probably hungry. We had a little setup team here today. It was pretty small. If you guys want to join us at 2.30 on Sundays to help us set up, we would appreciate that. But one of our setup members was Josh Engel, and Josh Engle was wearing his, his athletic attire today because at the end of setup, Christy jumped in the car and drove home, and then Josh ran from here to his house in Kilberney. Jesus would have understood How tired Josh probably was thinking about the chili that he had made a couple hours prior as he's going home, thinking about the ice cold water that is waiting for him. Jesus can understand that, yet we usually put Jesus in a completely different category. For the early church fathers, this was an important text because it demonstrates that Jesus is not just some divine being that has no point of contact with us. Jesus gets tired. Jesus gets hot and sweaty. Jesus gets thirsty. These seem like really ridiculous points to make, but it's important for us to, to link ourselves back into this sort of context. Jesus was tired out by his journey. He was sitting by the well. And it's important for us also to, to, to note that it was about noon. In the hottest point in the day, from one standpoint, we can say that Jesus uh, might be at, the, at his most I was about ready to say Jesus was at his most warm state, but that just, uh, sometimes you search for synonyms and they just don't come. Jesus was hot and it was in the middle of the day. You know what that's like from, from 10 to 2 in that range in the summertime. You know how that feels when you're just sitting out on the beach and perhaps he, he, was, he was going there. But we also need to, to, to tuck this one away. Just note, it was noon. Remember, because we talk about this all the time, so there is no free motif when you're reading the Bible. There's no wasted detail here for the author. This is an important point that's going to come back to what he is attempting to do. But the most notable part of this passage here is that Jesus is sitting by Jacob's well. All sorts of bells would have been going off for an ancient audience because they would have heard. Oh, this is going to be like one of those stories. A few weeks ago, Netflix released a movie called Bird Box. It was released on December 21st. And just by a show of hands, because I am curious, how many of you in the room have access to Netflix? And how many of you, keep your hands up, how many of you in the room have watched Bird Box? Well, I'll be. Okay, I thought we'd have more than that. It's a cultural phenomenon, people. Netflix never releases their numbers, but within the first seven days, they said, 45 million homes have viewed Bird Box with America's Princess Sandra Bullock. The the point of the movie or the plot of the movie is you cannot look Lest you see some sort of psychological monster thing that will make you want to end your own life. So everyone must go around with blindfolds on in an attempt to get to safety. Does it sound compelling yet? Maybe the people on this side. I mean, it was okay maybe, whatever. I don't know what, what all the hubbub is, but that's that's just me. And immediately people began to have critiques and comments on this. Our very own Brandon Havis actually had this comment where he said, this is just a rehashing of a quiet place, which instead of in Bird Box, you can't look lest you see some." Monster, whatever, which we never see in the movie, spoiler alert, but in The Quiet Place, you can't speak or make a sound lest you be attacked by some thing. I've never, I've never seen A Quiet Place, so I thought about doing some hardcore research for this sermon and watching it, but then I thought, I won't, not yet, although I do love John Krasinski, although he's always Jim to me in any role, even as Jack Ryan, whatever. But they said Bird Box is just a rehashing of A Quiet Place. It's got the same motif and it's just a little turn on that. The story that we see here with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well was a rehashing of big name Old Testament stories that everybody at the time would have remembered. The story of Isaac, who didn't actually go to the well, but Abraham, Isaac's dad, sent one of his servants to go and to find a wife for Isaac, and he does that by going to the well, where he knew that the ladies would be. Same thing with Jacob finding his wife, Rachel, and actually the story of Jacob and Rachel is interesting because it's set within a time where there was uh, guys that were hanging around near the well and they would not roll the stone away from the well until all of the women were there and all of the flocks were there so that they could just roll the stone off at once and then water all of the flocks. But when Jacob sees Rachel and says, hey man, let's water these flocks, and they say, nope, they're, nobody's, they're not all here yet. Jacob says, I'm gonna take care of this and show my, my lady Rachel what I've got to offer if you know what I'm saying. So Jacob at this time is, is um, meeting his wife-to-be, and the same thing with Moses and his wife-to-be. Zipporah later, they meet at the well, and for some people, when they hear about Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman, bells and whistles would be going off. Remember these old stories and read this one in light of that. And the author even sets it within a place where it says this is at Jacob's well. It's also important, here's a a tidbit that I don't think I have worked in here. The Samaritans only read the Pentateuch. They only read Genesis through Deuteronomy. They based all of their theology on that. Jews of the time, however, would read all of the Old Testament and other uh, select texts, but they would both take their lineage back to Abraham. So for the Samaritan woman to be be talking about or to be thinking about Jacob's well would be a point of pride for her. And now Jesus is going to do something in a completely different way that kind of blows up her system. In verse seven, it says, a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. No, no, (laughs) no. Abe really loves these magazines like highlights you guys remember when you were a kid and you went to the dentist and you read highlights whatever they would always have these things where it's like one picture versus another picture and you'd have to see what the what the differences are or sometimes you'd have to um, see which which doesn't make sense or which shouldn't which things shouldn't be there in an ancient audience like for them reading this they'd be like no no Jesus no what are you doing you don't ask for water you don't ask for uh, for anything from this woman who's coming to the well alone here, because Jewish men shouldn't be alone with women, first of all, and if they are, they certainly shouldn't talk to them. In fact, there was um, there was rules here for Jewish sages that they were not to communicate with with women. This was, these were one of the six things that you just don't do is to talk to women, to be alone with women because of what uh, what it might seem like, what the perceptions might be. And especially you don't talk to Samaritan women. You aren't alone with Samaritan women. So for Jesus to be interacting with this woman saying, give me a drink, is massive. But because of the 2,000 years removed, we don't quite see that all the time. In fact, in later Judaism, Samaritan women were viewed as always perpetually unclean. These would not be people that you talk to. These certainly would not be people that you share a cup with or that you drink from the same vessel. Later on, they would say that uh, Samaritan women were menstruants from the cradle, impure at all times. And remember, we're looking back to the Israelite and the Samaritan divide where these two people groups do not... See things eye to eye. So when the Samaritan woman comes to Jesus and Jesus says, give me a drink, there's all sorts of no's that are flying up here in how we're reading this story. Um, One scholar actually says the woman might have supposed that Jesus, noting that she had come to the well alone, hence was probably morally disreputable to begin with, that Jesus wanted something else. In the eyes of many potential first century readers, the beginning of the narrative is fraught with sexual ambiguity that is clarified only as the narrative progresses. In other words, this is Jesus saying, hey, give me a drink. Hey, we're at a well. You know what that's like. Hey, no? We, we don't like that image. We, we especially don't like me pretending to be Jesus in that image at all. But for, for, for the Samaritan woman, as she hears this, she might be jumping to conclusions that this is not the son of God, that this is not the Messiah who is to, to be here, who is to be initiating the kingdom of God. But yet this is just some guy who sees some woman and says, hey, baby, how about some of that water? Okay, it doesn't sound right putting pickup lines in Jesus' mouth here. Verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to, to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink.'" Verse 8, his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. Jesus is alone. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Because Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. There's a couple different ways that you could interpret that verb there. It might be that they don't share things in common, meaning they don't have the same cup. They don't draw from the well with the same vessel. Or it might just mean that they have no dealings with one another at all. It's unclear what she is calling Jesus on, but she's saying, listen, man, this isn't proper. This isn't how we do things. What are you doing? What do you want? What is happening here? Because all of the moral social barriers that have been constructed between my people and your people are being single-handedly dismantled by you in the simple request for water, This is important for us to realize what's happening here because it's so scandalous at the time. She knows it, Jesus knows it, and as readers, we know it too. And as I was reading this story, this just seems to be another example of subversive, line-blurring, inclusive Jesus that has been muted by most of us because we are ignorant of the context in which this story is taking place. Everything that Jesus is up to to this point is worthy of consideration because what he is doing is he is extending a hand to someone who has been ostracized and hated by by a particular community probably for her entire life. And she has no framework to understand this, but Jesus is crossing that line to initiate conversation with her. And I think there's a sermon there. Because the example that we see from Jesus is one who is crossing the aisle to a hated people group in order to bring about real change, to bring about a knowledge that they might not have, to bring about a sense of inclusion, a sense of healing, a sense of restoration. As the story progresses, we see that Jesus wanting to include this woman in everything that he has for her offering it to her, not the sexual stuff that she might think that he's after, but something even better than that is what Jesus has to offer. And while I might struggle to think of who those people are across the aisle for a moment, it would be important, I think, for us to pause and to think maybe about who the church has ostracized, to think about who the church has marginalized. To think about who our government has marginalized. To think about who are the people that might not be welcomed in our society and wonder for a moment that if the story was set in this time, if Jesus would not have ordained a meeting with one of those people. The story continues in verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Remember a few uh, weeks ago when we were talking about Nicodemus and, and Jesus says, you must be born then. You must be born from above. You must be born again. And Nicodemus automatically went to, what do you think I'm supposed to do? Crawl back up into my mom's womb, which is a very gross image for, for us to consider, but Nicodemus being very literal had no categories to understand Jesus and his, you must be born anothen, you must be born from above, you must be born again, and he went very literal. The same thing is about to happen here because Jesus, who is at a well, who is asking for water, says, if you knew Samaritan woman whos who you're talking to, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living Water. Before you go all super spiritual for a moment, in the first century Jewish context, living water meant moving water. It meant fresh water from a river or a stream. It meant something that was not stagnant. It was something that was not just in a cistern or an article that contains water. This was water that was perpetually moving because that was clean water. And she immediately goes into this hyper-literal, what do you mean that you have li- living water for me? What does it mean that you have moving water for me? She, ins- she says, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You can almost hear like the tongue in cheek here. She's like, you got nothing, man. Get out of here with this living water. You, got- you don't have it. Are you saying that you're greater than, catch it, our ancestor, Jacob? Not you, Jesus, Israelite, Jew of the time, our, and are you trying to, are you trying to tell me that you're better than our ancestor at whose well I am about to draw water? He's the one that gave us this well and with his sons and his flocks, he drank from it. Are you trying to tell us that that's who you are. Jesus says to her, "Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Everyone who pulls water from this well will keep being thirsty. It will be an endless back and forth for you. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life." dang, Jesus, don't you wish he was a bit more wooden? Don't you wish he was a bit more like, oh, I understand what you're saying because this one here, it's just like it's a lot of stuff even for us to understand. What is it that he is saying when he's comparing the water in this well to the water that he's going to give to people and how that water is going to to bubble up and to spring up and it's going to become water that's gushing to eternal life in us? But the woman begins to bite and she says, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming back here. Again, she's still wooden. She's still literal. She's still thinking about water in the well. She's still thinking about rivers and streams. She's still thinking about that. And Jesus has moved on to something completely different. She still isn't getting it. And I have to ask the question, are we? the living water that's that's given to us through our relationship with Jesus that's bubbling up to eternal life perhaps this is an inappropriate analogy but what is the source of which we are drinking from is it living is it moving is it rushing or is it old stagnant contained water I don't know about you guys, but I very rarely finish a bottle of water, and I'll just leave it sitting around, and sometimes I'll, I'll roll the dice and say, this one hasn't been sitting around too long, and you take a drink, and you can tell it's been around maybe a week or so too long. Not a week, that's disgusting, but you know what I mean? Like In our spiritual lives, in our relationships with Jesus, which source are we pulling from? The one that he is allowing us to pull from? that source that is bubbling up to eternal life, or do we keep going back to something that is stagnant and old? I think there's a sermon there as well. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Now, before we jump to the part of the story that we know, hear her for a second and think about where she is. She's met this crazy Jewish rabbi who's sitting at the well by himself, who says, Give me some water. And then they start having this spiritual conversation. And then Jesus says this, this strange, like abrupt turn, go and call your husband and come back. And the woman says, I don't have a husband. You wanna hear it like that, where she, she's coming back to the well. She's like, I'm not tied down, Jesus. <laughs> it's strange here, but just stick with me for a moment, okay? Because there's lots of sexual tension Uh, Let me back that up because you're going to take that one and run with it and tweet it. There's some sexual tension here in this story from the very beginning to right now, wondering what is it that this woman is thinking that Jesus is going to offer because she's still thinking literal. She's still thinking about water. She doesn't quite grasp what he has for her and the weird turn of, go call your husband, I'm not tied down. Okay, there's this weirdness that's happening here, but Jesus 180s it again and he says, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. I got a word that's coming to my mind here and it's not the right one, but I just, I mean, kind of like busted, you know, like, oh, there goes that plan. But this is not what Jesus is about because remember Jesus, meek, mild, No judgment here, Jesus. In fact, one scholar says Jesus calls attention to her problematic situation. And that's a way to frame this, especially within the first century uh, Jewish culture of this time. To be married five times is no small thing. She is not, in a sense, becoming uh, more desirable as time goes on here. But Jesus is calling attention to this problematic situation. He doesn't condemn her. Notice, he doesn't say anything about what happened with all those five guys. Why'd they leave you? What'd you do? And what are you doing shacked up with this guy right now? He doesn't go there. Uh, this is Marianne Mae Thompson. She says, subsequently, commentators and preachers have hastened to fill the void of this lack of condemnation that Jesus does not supply. In other words, it's my job now to pick up the microphone and say, this woman is, and then I just start going and filling in some blanks here. But this is not what is appropriate in this story. Now, I'm gonna put my main man on blast here for a second, my main man, N.T. Wright. You know if you spent any amount of time here, me and N.T., right, we're, we're tight. Arthur is especially tight with him. He had coffee with him one time, or tea and scrumpets, whatever they do over there in Scotland. But N.T. Wright says this woman is obviously a bad character. He goes on to say, remember how she goes to the well at noon? He says the normal time for women to visit the well, set as it was at some distance from the town, would be at a cooler time of the day, most likely first thing in the morning or late in the afternoon. But this woman has come at the time when she is least likely to meet anyone. At least anyone who knows her, her past, or her immoral lifestyle. To which we say to our main man NT, that's quite a leap, friend. It's not in the text. There might be some subtle implications of that, but we've taken some liberties here, have we not? And he's picking up the mantle of commentators and pastors who are rushing to fill the void to put condemnation upon this woman and leave it to um, a, a woman commentator to pick up on the thing that most white men are unable to pick up on. She says in verses 16 through 19... They've been consistently misinterpreted, resulting in the popular portrait of this woman as a sinner. The text is not, as interpreters almost unanimously assume, evidence of the woman's immorality. Jesus does not judge her, and any moral judgments are imported into the text by interpreters. There are many possible reasons for her marital history other than her moral laxity. At the end of the day, we don't know this woman's story. So let's 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 remove ourselves from the condemnation and sinful accusations and picking up stones to throw at this woman and take one step back and maybe say that there appears to be some social marginalization that is probable in this story. For example, she is alone. She is at the well at a weird time of day. We don't know why. There might be a reason, but she's here by herself. She's sort of macking it up on Jesus. And I don't know if this is just something that 37-year-olds that went to private school might say, but when she says, I don't have a husband, there's a tone there that you could maybe infer From this, that she might have some streak of immorality to her in this story. She's been married five times. This isn't a judgment statement. This is a true statement that means that there has been a marginalization here because she will be the woman who has had five husbands, and all of those marriages have ended in failure, whether they are death or whether they are um, divorce. She is no longer with these people There's no kids that are involved, which might lead us to think about the the shame in the moment of infertility and her not being able to conceive and have children. And then finally, her current man isn't offering her the protection that she might need. In this context, that marital relationship was an important one for the woman to be uh, protected financially, socially, in any sort of situations, and she is getting the best of what she can get from this person. So at the very least, there's some social marginalization that seems probable. So in review in this story, Jesus is breaking down social barriers with a probably marginalized woman of an enemy people in a potentially hostile land. And rather than judging her unworthy, he is offering her life. There is definitely a sermon here. Jesus ministering to people That no one else might minister to. The woman with this backstory, and perhaps she did want to go to the well when no one else would be there because she couldn't deal with the shame of seeing other people that have a different life, that haven't had the hardships that she has had. Perhaps she wanted just a moment of respite where she could go and get water for whatever it is that she was watering and be alone and not have to face any sort of accusatory looks, to not have to face the people that might have pushed her off to the side, that might not have to hear the whispers from the people across the way. But Jesus in this moment invites her in, perhaps for the very first time. And where we took a break before to say there's a sermon here with us reaching across the aisle, this takes us even that much further, because it's not just a person that's part of a group, it's a person that's part of a group with a specific backstory of hurt and pain, potentially tragedy and suffering, and Jesus is attempting to bridge that gap, Now, I think that we could stop here, but it's important for us to power through and to hear the rest of this story as we see it play out because the way that it ends is redemptive at its very core. The woman says to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. She sees that Jesus knows everything about her, that she can't uh, avoid what he's saying to her. And she immediately wants to go to the question that was unanswered at the time that separated the Samaritan people from the Israelite people. And she says, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain But you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And again, we're looking at geography here. So for the... um Israelites in the bottom here, they would say that Jerusalem is the place of worship. But for the Samaritans, they had another temple on Mount Gerizim. And this was the thing that that, that separated these people. The Samaritans believed that their place of worship was the true place where God really dwelled, where they would, would read their text in a way that they interpreted. And that the Jews down in Jerusalem would read their text in the way that they interpreted in their temple. And there was a divide religiously between these two groups. And she's wanting to know whose Right. Jesus doesn't necessarily address this in the way that she might think best fitting. He says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's not about temples. It's not about texts. It's not about religious rituals. It's not about the things that we do. It's about something different. It says, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. One of my weird New Year's resolutions is to practice meditation daily or roughly. And I've loaded up an app on my phone. It's called the Insight Timer. It's very strange and weird. So if you download it, be prepared. But there's some, there's some things. I, I've, I've set up my own meditation tones and I've set up a little timer and I can just sit and reflect and in, internalize almost in this moment of prayer. This is not what Jesus is talking about. When he says that people must worship my father in spirit and in truth, he's not pulling an internal versus external worship. He's not saying true worship means you listen to Caleb and you pray a lot and you read your Bible and your life doesn't change at all. And nobody can even tell that you do these things because you don't care about the poor or the oppressed or the marginalized. And you don't support people who don't look like you or think like you or act like you. And you just kind of live in your own bubble. He's not saying that that is the good thing to do. I hope you guys caught the sarcasm there. He's saying that this internal uh, worship of God in spirit and in truth, it must completely identify who we are. There's no internal versus external, but it all becomes something different. It's not about the rites and rituals that we used to practice. It's about something completely different. Namely, it's about the spirit of the living God indwelling within us, inspiring us and moving us to love people well there's gonna come a day when it's not about your temple or our temple, there's gonna come a day and it's actually now here when God is calling people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is where we should be heading. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll make all of this make sense. He'll, he'll proclaim all things to us. And Jesus says to her, that's me. The person that you've been waiting for I'm, I'm him, the one who's speaking to you right now, who's laid out your entire life, who's, who's talked to you about living water, who's invited you in, who's, who's said that there's a moment now where all of the, the stuff of the past is breaking down and something new is happening. I'm the one who is leading that to fruition here and now. The story continues, just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. It's interesting, isn't it? She never comes back for that water jar. She leaves it there because maybe she's now beginning to glimpse that it's not about the water in the well. It's about something different. And the thing that once occupied her now does not occupy her anymore. She leaves her water jar and went back to the city. She says to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Skipping down a few verses. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I have ever done, she says. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of this word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is truly, catch it, not the Savior of Israel not the one that the Samaritans have been looking for. This one that we now see, the one that has offered us living water that does not ostracize us and marginalize us, but invites us in to experience God in a new way is the savior of the world. And we are a part of that. Now, I think what we usually can't begin to understand for most of us in the room is what that must have felt like because we usually aren't the ones who are ostracized and oppressed and marginalized. We are usually the ones in power who are keeping people out. My hope tonight is that when we hear this word from the Samaritan woman and we hear the confession of these people that Jesus is the savior of the world who is breaking down these social barriers and allowing people who don't fit in or who don't belong to come and to have a seat at the table, perhaps we might begin to analyze and assess our relationships and see who we have discluded or excluded from the family of God and begin to take our notes from Jesus instead and to celebrate him as the Savior of the world who has broken down the barriers and invites everyone in. The word of God for the people of God. It's my hope tonight that wherever you are in this story, perhaps you feel alone. Perhaps you feel on the outside looking in. Perhaps you have felt the judgment of the church your entire life. Perhaps you have felt as though you don't belong. What this story Definitively speaks is that that word is not the last one and that word is not the true one. Instead, we follow a Savior who allows anyone who is willing to partake of the living water that He so freely gives is allowed a seat at the table. And if I'm the first one to tell you today or in a while, you are a beloved child of the most high God, and he wants nothing more than for you to run home and to sit with him at the table. For those of you that are in the room and and you're you're in a different place, may we be reminded that as followers of Jesus, it is our goal, it is our mission, it is our high calling to be the agents of change and restoration who invite people in. I'm hopeful that we will begin to see a glimpse of the grace that we have received and the grace that we can begin to share with others when we understand what Jesus is up to in this world and how he is wanting to use us.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restore SBY or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.